You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. Can you bow with me as we pray? Our gracious God, it is in the unfolding of your word that we see light, and we pray that you would give us that light today. May your word be our guide, and may you send your spirit to be our teacher for the glory of your Son, in whose name we pray. Amen. We turn now to John chapter 13. John chapter 13. No turning pages. Everybody's there. Your Bible just falls open to John now. Just hold it up and it drops open to John. All right, John chapter 13. We'll read together beginning at verse 12. We read 12 through verse 20. So when he had washed their feet and taken his garments and reclined at the table again, he said to them, Do you know what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, the Lord and the teacher, washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I gave you an example that you also should do as I did to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a slave is not greater than his master, nor is one who is sent greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, you are blessed if you do them. I do not speak of all of you. I know the ones I have chosen. But it is that the scripture may be fulfilled. He who eats my bread has lifted up his heel against me. From now on, I am telling you before it comes to pass, so that when it does occur, you may believe that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who receives whomever I send receives me, and he who receives me receives him who sent me. I want you to look at verse 18. Partway through that, Jesus says, It is that the scripture may be fulfilled. He who eats my bread has lifted up his heel against me. That is a quotation from Psalm 41, verse 9. Now I would like you to turn back to the book of Psalms, to Psalm 41. And that's actually where we're going to be spending our time this morning, in Psalm 41. I had you turn to John 13 so that you could see that passage, and then you would know why I'm asking you to turn back to the book of Psalms. Psalm 41 I think it is a benefit for us as a church when we are going through a book of the Bible to take various Old Testament passages that are quoted in the New Testament and to go back and to look at those passages in their Old Testament context. And I think that that helps us to, in a number of ways. First, it helps us to see the context as the Jews would have understood it. We need, I mean, we could just go through John 13 and I could say, okay, that's a quotation from Psalm 41 verse 9 and, and have two sentences about what David was going through and, and here's how that kind of shines light on this passage. But I think it's even better for us when we come across New Testament quotations to, to jump back to that Old Testament text and say, I want to understand that quotation in its original context as the Jews would have understood it. And that helps us to remember that our Old Testament really is primarily about the Lord Jesus Christ. It points forward to Him. And it reminds us that all the details of the life and the ministry and the death and the resurrection and even His, His current intercession for His people in heaven, all of that is, is predicted and anticipated in the Old Testament. And by going back and looking at the full context of New Testament citations, sometimes understanding how the Jews would have seen that verse helps us to understand why Jesus would use those verses of himself or why the New Testament authors cited those verses. And then there's also a lot of things to be learned from those citations. Apart from their New Testament usage, there's a lot of things to be learned from those citations um, just in their original context. There's a lot of meat there, and we ought to appreciate our Old Testament. So for all of those reasons, and one more, by the way, one more, 
We're going back to Psalm 41. The last reason is because if if you tend to be worn out by the monotony of doing the same book over and over, week after week after week, even though it's only been five years since we started the book of John, I know that some of you have a short attention span, right? We're in the YouTube generation where we look at a video, we think 90 seconds, oh, 90 seconds, that's forever. Five years seems like forever. Jumping into the Old Testament kind of gives us a little bit of a break from what we've been going through. And it helps us to take a different passage of Scripture, but also to still shine light on our understanding of the Gospel of John. So that's what we're doing. We're in Psalm 41. The verse that is quoted by Jesus in John 13 is chapter 41 and verse 9. Look at verse 9. Even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. Now, you can tell from verse 9 that David is obviously writing about a friend who had betrayed him, and a close friend, a close companion and associate, who had done something to attack David and had betrayed David, and he is feeling the pain of that. But it's not just the, the pain of the betrayal of a close friend that David laments in this psalm. He also describes in this context of this psalm other things that he suffered. Bodily affliction, the attacks of enemy, uh, the vicious slander of those who hated him, and even sought to kill him. And some people who had who were hunting him and wanting him dead. So David describes all of that affliction. And the central idea of Psalm 41 is this, that in the midst of trials and affliction and even betrayal by a close friend, God can be trusted. That is what David looks to. In the midst of all of those life circumstances, he focuses on the Lord, who the Lord is, what the Lord has done, what the Lord will do. And the message of Psalm 41 is in the midst of all of that affliction and betrayal, God can be trusted because God is faithful. And the psalm is naturally divided into three parts. Here are the three parts. In verses 1 through 3, we see that God, God's faithfulness is seen in the expectation of an afflicted saint. Let's read verses 1 through 3. Let me get on the right page and we'll do it. Psalm 41, verse 1. How blessed is he who considers the helpless. The Lord will deliver him in a day of trouble. The Lord will protect him and keep him alive. And he shall be called blessed upon the earth. And do not give him over to the desire of his enemies. The Lord will sustain him upon his sickbed. In his illness, you restore him to health. Now, that is David's expectation. So God is seen to be faithful in the expectation of the afflicted saint. And then verses 4 through 9, in the experience of the afflicted saint. Verse 4, as for me, I said, O Lord, be gracious to me. Heal my soul, for I have sinned against you. My enemies speak evil against me. When will he die and his name perish? And when he comes to see me, he speaks falsehood. His heart gathers wickedness to itself. When he goes outside, he tells it. All who hate me whisper together against me. Against me they devise my hurt, saying, A wicked thing is poured out upon him, that when he lies down, he will not rise up again. Even my close friend, in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. That's the experience of, of David in his affliction. And then the faithfulness of God is seen in the exaltation, or the glory, or the praise, if you will, of the afflicted saint. Verses 10-13, through 13, But you, O Lord, be gracious to me, and raise me up, that I may repay them. By this I know that you are pleased with me because my enemy does not shout in triumph over me. As for me, you uphold me in my integrity. You set me in your presence forever. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. Amen and amen. So that's the division. In his expectation, his experience, and then in his exaltation of God at the end. God is to be seen faithful in the midst of all of that. Now I want you to notice that Psalm 41 comes at the end of what is called the first book of the Psalms. You'll notice right before Psalm 42, it says book 2. The Psalms are divided into five books. And you'll notice this if you read through the Psalms. You'll see book 2, book 3, book 4, and book 5. 
It has been suggested by some that the Jews divided the Psalter, that is the book of Psalms, into five individual books to sort of correspond to the first five books of Moses. And people have spent all kinds of ink and time and study trying to show the parallels between the book of Genesis and the first 41 Psalms or book one and the book of Exodus and the second book of the Psalter, etc. I just want you to notice that and that verse 13 kind of ends up, kind of rounds out the first book of the Psalms and that Psalm 41 comes at the close of the first book of the Psalms. Now, this psalm is said to be, is ascribed to David. That comes before verse 1. Look at the introduction, introduction of the psalm. It is for the choir director, a psalm of David. Now, here's something interesting about the first book of the psalms, the first 41. Of the first 41 psalms in the book of Psalms, only four of them do not have an description of who wrote the book, or the psalm. Only four of the psalms. That means that 37 of them are ascribed to somebody. Of those 37 psalms that do have an author ascribed to them, all 37 of them are ascribed to David. So 37 out of the 41, leaving only four without any author designated for the psalm. Psalm 2 is one of those four that doesn't have an author. And on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, Peter quoted from Psalm 2 and said, this is what David said. So Peter attributes Psalm 2 to David, meaning that of the four that don't have an author listed for it, only three of them are we really uncertain of. The first one, Psalm 2, is written by David. So that means that 38 out of the 41 psalms that begin our book of psalms are all from the pen of David. And it may be that those three psalms who are not, we don't have an author for, it may be that those three come from David as well. So be thinking in terms of this entire first book of the psalms comes from the pen of David. as We have him to thank. And it was for the choir director. It was a mascal, which meant that it was meant to be set to music. Now, I gave you the division. Let me give you a little bit about the setting. and the, the, We already know who the, the singer is or the, the author of it. Let me give you a little bit about the setting. There's nothing in the psalm, and you'll notice by reading through it and even in the introduction, there's nothing in the psalm that specifically says on what occasion the psalm was written and what it was that David was going through. We kind of put together the pieces. Some have suggested that what is being described here, the, the occasion of this psalm, is Second Samuel chapters 15 through 17. And there was something going on in the life of David at the time. In 2 Samuel 15 through 17, it tells the story of, uh, oh, his name just, there's two guys with the, uh, oh, it was almost there. Absalom, sorry. David's son Absalom. It was Absalom's rebellion against David. And do you remember how, uh, Absalom rebelled against David? He sat in the, the, the gate of the city. And as people came into the city to, to give their grudges or, or to present their grudges and their cases before the king, Absalom would pull them aside to himself and say, you know, if I were king, you'd have a, a personal hearing with me. I would hear every case and, and I would give you justice. You're not going to get that from my father, David. And for this, he did for four years. And he sat there and he spoke evil of David, betraying David and swept away the hearts of the people. And as everybody came into the city of Jerusalem, he would just slowly get the hearts of the people to come after him. And he did this, it says, for four years. And at the end of four years, he appointed men in every city and every region of, of, of Israel to proclaim, Absalom is king in Jerusalem. And then he came into the city, marched into the city with his men, proclaiming himself to be king. So it was an insurrection. insurrection. Absalom was David's son, a man who had eaten bread at his table, who had enjoyed fellowship with David. His, his, own, his own son had done this. And then David could have confronted Absalom. He could have put down the rebellion because David had the military at his command. And he could have done that, but he didn't. He conceded, basically, and left Jerusalem. So is it Absalom that is being described in verse 9? It might be. We're not told. But there was insult added to that injury in 2 Samuel 15-17. through 17. 
Because David had a close, a, a, a close advisor, a man named Ahithophel. That was the other one whose name I was trying to remember that started with the letter A. Ahithophel. Ahithophel was a close advisor to David. He was a man who was basically like David's chief of staff. And he was a man who counseled David. He gave David advice. He was the head of David's cabinet, as it were. Somebody who sat at David's table. And do you remember what Ahithophel did? When Absalom came into Jerusalem, Ahithophel did not leave with David. Ahithophel stayed in Jerusalem. And then he started giving counsel to Absalom. In other words, he cast his lot in with Absalom the rebel. And at one point in time, Ahithophel had even counseled Absalom, go out and pursue your father into the caves, into the fields, wherever he is at. You will overtake him and you will kill him and all of the nation will be yours. That was the, that was the counsel that Ahithophel had given to Absalom. So is it Ahithophel that is described in verse 9? A close friend who had eaten his bread and now had lifted up his heel against him. It might be Absalom. It might be Ahithophel, but we're not told. In fact, the details of this psalm are just specific enough that you and I can say, yeah, I've been there, I've experienced that, I've seen that, I've known that. But they're general enough that we can probably say, I have seen that and experienced that and known that on more than one occasion. I would suggest that Psalm 41 could have been written at any number of times in the life of David. How many times have you been betrayed? Have you ever been betrayed by a close friend? How many times? Only once? Maybe if you're under nine years old, it's only once. But if you've lived past the age of ten, you can probably say, you know, there's a number of occasions in my life when I have seen the, this psalm lived out in front of me and I have felt the angst and the pain of this psalm. Unfortunately, life presents more than just one time to us when, when we can relate to David. So it could have been written really at any time probably in the life of David. There was a number of times when he had experienced the attacks of his enemies. Now, the significance of Psalm 41 rests not in the fact that you and I can sort of look at the psalm and say, oh, I see myself and my experience in there. That's not the significance of the psalm. The significance of the psalm is that we look into the pages of this psalm, the words of this psalm, and we see not our experiences and our emotions, but the experiences of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the real significance of this psalm. It is a messianic psalm. Psalm 41, verse 9, Jesus quotes as being fulfilled on the night of his betrayal. Jesus said, Psalm 41, verse 9 points to him. One who is a close companion of him. One who had eaten his bread. Lifted up his heel against the Lord Jesus. So it is Judas's betrayal of Jesus that is really the, the quintessential fulfillment of this psalm. And we see this oftentimes in Old Testament prophecy. That sometimes when an Old Testament prophet or a psalm would speak of an event surrounding themselves. Or prophesying of something that would happen even in their own lifetime. That there was a fulfillment in their own lifetime. That the experiences that they describe are true to them. But at the same time, the events and the words look forward beyond the author and beyond his times to a fulfillment that is even greater than the author itself. And that's what we have here. So the psalm really anticipates an even greater fulfillment, which is the Lord Jesus Christ. But there are things in this psalm that we cannot say are true of the Lord Jesus. Look at verse 4, for instance. As for me, I said, O Lord, be gracious to me, heal my soul, for I have sinned against you. Does that speak of David, of Jesus, or of both? David and only David. So Old Testament prophecy, Psalms, things like that, when we see Christ in the Old Testament, if we, if we have in our picture, in our eyesight, the Lord Jesus, and we take, for instance, Psalm 41, the life of, of David, and we put it over top of the Lord Jesus, there are going to be par, par, points of correspondence where we say, oh, look at the parallels there. Look at the similarities there. But there will also be 
things that are not quite right. And that's what we have here. So we have a psalm that anticipates and looks forward to the Lord Jesus, the Holy Spirit intended for certain things in this psalm, for us to see this fulfilled in Christ. But at the same time, there are certain things in this psalm that are not and cannot be fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Now, some people would say, and this is just a stretch and there's no extra charge for this. Some people would say that verse four, when Jesus took our sin upon himself, that that's what verse four was anticipating. But there's a difference between David being a sinner personally and Jesus taking sin by imputation. Those are two different things. So I don't see any kind of a parallel there whatsoever. Now, all that serves to introduce the psalm. And with our time mostly gone now, let's actually get into the psalm itself. And we will work through these, all three of these divisions. Uh, God is seen to be faithful in the expectation of the afflicted saint, in the experience of the afflicted saint, and then in the exaltation of the afflicted saint. Let's look first of all at the expectation of the afflicted saint. Psalm 41. And see, I have to keep flipping back and forth like this because don't you hate it when the passage that we're looking at is on two different pages of your Bible and you've got to go back and forth? That's what I have to do. So, how blessed is he who considers the helpless? The Lord will deliver him in the day of trouble. That word helpless, in the older translations, King James, I think New King James as well, it's translated as poor. Blessed is he who considers the poor. And it is sometimes taken to be a reference to a blessing upon those who are mindful of and think of and take care of the poor. And so then the rest of verses 1 through 3 is taking as, taken as a list of blessings that come or accrue to the one who remembers or considers the poor person in their poverty. And so if we understand verse 1 to be describing the person who is financially poor, and then blessed is the one who helps that individual by giving of his means to him, then you look in verse 1, the Lord will deliver him. That is, the one who considers the poor. The Lord will deliver that blessed man up in the day of his trouble. The Lord will protect him and keep him alive. He shall be called blessed upon the earth and not given over to the desire of his enemies. The Lord will sustain him. That is not the poor, but the one who helps the poor. And in his illness, you will restore him to health. But the word poor there in the newer translations is translated as weak or helpless. And the word can speak of those who are financially poor. Now, I think that I do believe that God has a heart for the poor. I do believe that giving giving to the poor, helping the poor, considering those who are less fortunate or going through affliction is a thing that we ought to do and that it pleases God. But I do not think that that is what David is describing in this context. In the context, which would be the entire rest of the psalm, I think that what David is describing is himself. He, in this situation, is the helpless man. And he is saying, blessed is that man who helps the helpless man who considers the helpless man as opposed to, like verses 4-9, through the one who slanders him and attacks him and wishes for his death. So the word weak can mean downtrodden. It can mean uh, helpless, a hopeless, without strength. It can mean poor. And I think that what David is describing here is his own situation. And he is saying, I was, at the point that he's describing here, I was that helpless man. And unlike those who lift up their heel against me, blessed is the one who considers men like me in that situation. Blessed is the one who helps the man who is helpless instead of turning on the man who is helpless. And that means that verses 1 through 3 not only describe David's situation, but his expectation. Blessed is that one who helps men who are in my condition, who considers them. And then he describes what he believed would be true of himself. We see this later on in the psalm as well. The Lord will deliver him, that is, the helpless man or the weak man. The Lord will deliver him in the day of trouble. The Lord will protect him, the weak man, and keep him alive. He shall be called blessed upon the earth and not given over to the desire of his enemies. The Lord will sustain the weak man upon his sickbed. In his sickness you restore him to health. 
So in those first three verses, David is describing himself as being the weak one, the the one who was helpless and hopeless, and saying, that was the condition I was in. And blessed is the one who gives strength to that man in that condition, instead of persecuting him like others did later on. Because God will deliver him, God will raise him up, God will sustain him. And notice that the focus of David all the way through those first three verses is on whom? Not himself, and not even the man who helps him. But on whom? On the Lord. The Lord will do this. See, this is the... This is the silver lining in affliction. The silver lining of affliction is that it turns our hearts to God and helps us to see Him and who He is. That's what suffering is intended to do by God when we let it have its perfect work in us. But if instead of seeing God's hand in that and saying, how can I respond in this way to God rightly and obey Him in it and learn from Him in it, if if we see suffering and affliction as something that, that we lament and we say, oh, poor me, and we get bitter and we get angry and we get impatient and we begin to covet the affliction or the, the health and prosperity of others, if in that moment that's how we do, then we don't get the gold of being drawn to God in the midst of our affliction. Instead, we just suck up the dross. We just drink the dross of that affliction rather than mining the gold of it. In Psalm 119, and I don't know if it's David who wrote this, Psalm 119 describes affliction and the benefits of affliction throughout the psalm. Let me give you a few of the verses from Psalm 119, verse 50. This is my comfort in my affliction that your word has revived me. The psalmist looked at his affliction and said, in the midst of my affliction, God's word did this for me. And that's the benefit of it. That's the benefit of affliction is when the afflicted can look at their affliction and say, God is doing this in me as a result of my affliction. Psalm 119, verse 67. Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. Right? It is the affliction which straight brings us back. I was going astray and God afflicted me and brought me back. That's the blessing of the gold of affliction. Verse 71, it is good for me that I was afflicted. Can you say that? It is good for me that I was afflicted. Those are hard words to say. It is good for me that I was afflicted that I may learn your statutes. Verse 75, I know, O Lord, that your judgments are righteous and that in faithfulness you have afflicted me. Not in his apathy, not in his... Not in his dislike for you, not in his disapproval, but in God's faithfulness, he afflicts his people. Those are hard, hard sentences. Verse 92, if your law had not been my delight, then I would have perished in my affliction. Verse 153, look upon my affliction and rescue me, for I do not forget your law. That is the blessing of affliction. And that's what David saw. David saw that God is faithful in the midst of this, even as he anticipated being delivered from it or through it. And notice that David does not say, you prevent or preserve your godly ones from affliction. Does God do that? Does God promise to keep us out of any affliction? No, He promises to what? Drag us through the affliction. David doesn't say, in your grace, you will keep me off my sickbed. David says, by your grace, you give me grace for my sickbed. There's a difference there. Jesus is not a bridge over troubled waters, but He will pull you through the troubled waters if you can stand the toe. So David is not trusting God to give him, keep him preserved from affliction, but to keep him preserved in affliction and to eventually preserve him through affliction and carry him safely through to the other side. That is the faithfulness of God seen in the expectation of an afflicted saint. Now I want you to look at his experience beginning in verse 9, or verse 4, sorry, verse 4. As for me, I said, O Lord, be gracious to me. Now I want you to notice something. In verses 1 through 3, David has described all of that in the third person. Blessed is he, the Lord will deliver him. It's he and him and his all the way through the first three verses. But beginning in verse 4, it's first person. As for me, and the rest of this psalm is very personal. It is almost as if David states this general truth in the third person as something that he knows to be objectively true. And now we are going to hear his personal experience in the midst of what 
he knows to be true. As for me, I said, O Lord, be gracious to me. Heal my soul, for I have sinned against you. Now, if David is the one that is described in verse 3, and I think that he is, that he is the one who is upon his sickbed and in an illness, expecting to be restored to health, then verse 4 means that in the midst of his sickbed and on his sickbed, David came to understand what? His sin. Be gracious to me, O Lord, and heal my soul, for I have sinned against you. This is another benefit of affliction and suffering and sickness is that it can make us painfully aware of our own sin. When you're laying on a sickbed and you are ill, you know what? You know how our mind, let me put it this way, it has the ability to direct our thoughts and attentions toward the reality of our own sin. Because then I say, why am I sick? Is it because of some sin that I have committed? That may be true. Not, not all suffering and not all sickness is a result of sin. We should never think that it is. Sometimes affliction and suffering just come as a result of living in a sinful world. But it is always good in the midst of suffering and sin to ask, is there something that I have done for which the Lord is disciplining me in this? So our thoughts should turn to my own sin. Is that the cause? And then when our thoughts turn that direction, even if it is not the direct cause, it is not my sin that equals my suffering, if that's not the direct cause, at least in the midst of that, I can reflect upon the reality of my own sinfulness. And I may say, I'm suffering affliction. I, I don't deserve this because I have not sinned against God in a way that might merit this. And I don't like this, and it is not enjoyable, and it is not pleasant. But I certainly cannot say that I don't des- deserve this in the sense that I have never, ever sinned. Right? I can look at my own suffering and say, what causes suffering in this world? It is sin in general. And am I a sinner? I most certainly am. And even the, even the existence of affliction and suffering recalls to our minds that we are sinners. And sometimes our response in affliction and suffering can be a study in personal sin, right? We're going through affliction and we say, Lord, this is taking way too long. You should have done this and this and this in the midst of this. And this should be how this takes care of. And why is this taking so long? And begin to even think in our minds and our hearts that God is unjust in this and He's not unjust. And that God is uncaring in this and He is not uncaring. Or that it is taking too long and it's not necessarily taking too long. It's, it's taking perfectly the right amount of time that God wants for it. And sometimes even when we begin to covet other people's health or their well-being or, or their mobility or, or their prosperity or their, their, uh, their abilities, then that begins to highlight even our sins. So suffering has a way not only of reminding us we are sinners, but even highlighting our sinful response in the midst of affliction and suffering. And so that's the first thing David cries out for. Lord, forgive me of this sin. There's nothing in the context that says necessarily that it was sin that caused all of the suffering that he is about to describe. But David is aware at least of his own sinfulness and confesses that to the Lord and makes sure that the Lord knows that David desires to be free from that sin, free from that iniquity that plagued him. Notice that David is not praying, Lord, at this point, David is not praying, Lord, raise me up from my sickbed. Give me physical health. What is the top of David's priority? Spiritual health. I want my soul to be healed. I need my soul to be made right. My heart is wrong in this. My heart is wrong always. And I long to be free from this burden of death and sin and this body of death. You ever long to be free from the body of death when you're suffering affliction, physical illness? Right? Ever prayed for the sweet release of death in the midst of suffering and sickness? I'm sure you have. Right? We want to be long from that. But more importantly, we want to be free from the sinful thoughts and the sinful heart that is revealed in the midst of affliction. So that is verse 4. Now look at verse 5. This is where David begins to describe my enemies. They speak evil against me. Now, keep in mind that this is while David is on a sickbed. 
This is while he is suffering physical affliction. He is the helpless man, the weak man. He is without strength and ability. And at that time, his enemies are speaking evil against him. What are they saying? When will he die and his name perish? Uh, David had a number of enemies. He, He was the head of state. He was the head of the kingdom. Probably written while he was king. He is describing here the the betrayal of a close friend. And and this close friend had become his enemy. And now David, of course, has enemies. It seems that it seems that the higher up in life you get or the more prominent or more visible you get or the more responsibility or favor that God shows you, the bigger of a target you become. Have you ever noticed that? Who Who is most likely to be sniped at and criticized and critiqued and wished for their downfall? The president of the corporation or the company or the guy that sweeps the floor in the mailroom? It's the president of the corporation and the company. That's just one of the unfortunate realities of fallen, sinful human nature. That we want to go after the people at the top. Who do you blame for your taxes? The guy sweeping the floor at the IRS? Who do you blame? All the way to the top of the food chain, right? They're the ones that get our disapproval. So the higher up you get, and David is as high up as he could get, the more likely he is to accumulate enemies and people who sought his downfall. And that's what they were desiring. They were desiring that he would die. Look at verse 5. When will he die and his name perish? What did they long for? They longed for his death. The wicked do not just want the righteous to be quiet. The wicked do not just want the righteous to go away. What do the wicked desire? The death of the righteous. These enemies did not want David just to turn, uh, leave the throne and walk away. They wanted David dead. And more than that, they wanted his name to perish. His reputation to perish. The wicked don't just gnash their teeth against the man. They gnash their teeth against his memory because the memory of the righteous is enough to plague the conscience of the guilty, evil, wicked doer. Just the memory of the righteous is enough. So what do they want of David? We want his name to be erased. They want him gone. It's kind of like what they said of Paul in Acts chapter 22, verse 22, when they said, away with this man, he is not worthy to even live. They said that of Paul. They were saying that of David. But you know who else they said that of? The Lord Jesus. Ultimately, Jesus is the one, I think, whose enemies are being here described. It is the the Jews and the hostile religious leaders who wanted to kill Jesus, and that wasn't enough. They were trying to put Lazarus to death as well after the resurrection. You remember that? And they gnashed their teeth against Jesus. And then in the book of Acts, chapters 4 and 5, you'll notice it. Read Acts 4 and 5. You'll notice the reputation of the word, the name. The apostles were preaching in the name. And the leaders in the uh, religious leaders in Jerusalem said, we prohibit you to preach anymore in this name. What did they want to disappear from the face of the earth? Not just Jesus, but now that his name lives on, they want the name to perish as well. That's what the wicked desired. So what is it that the wicked Jews of Jesus' day desired? That Jesus would die and that his name would perish. That is what they wanted. And they said all kinds of vile and hateful and horrible things against Jesus and and it was there was nobody more unworthy of such slander than him, than he was. And that is exactly what they said of him. Uh, verse 6, when he comes to see me, now David is describing here this enemy. When the enemy comes to see me, he speaks falsehood. Now picture the, picture the scenario or the scene. David is in a sickbed. His enemies speak all kinds of evil against him. And then they come to see him. And David says, when he comes to see me, he speaks falsehood. What does he mean by that? Uh, David, we're just here to see how you're doing. We're concerned about you. Is that true? Falsehood. Uh, we, we're just praying that the Lord will raise you up soon. Really? Now, we're wanting to know if there's anything we can do for you. We want, whatever you need, we're here to give it to you. These men came to David in his distress and in his sickness, in his illness, when he's hopeless and weak. 
and they lied to him. It was a feigned friendship and a feigned concern. And they spoke falsehood in his midst. Pretending to be his friend when in reality, verse 6 says, he gathers, his heart gathers wickedness to itself. It's an interesting phrase. His heart gathers wickedness to himself. In the King James, it says his heart gathers iniquity to itself. And then the NIV says, while his heart gathers slander. Now that really kind of captures the, the scene. This man comes and speaks falsehood. Hey, we just want to know how you're doing. Tell us what, tell us what you're going through. And David said he speaks falsehood as a, as a feigned friend in his presence. And what is the man doing while he is listening to David talk, while he is examining David's situation, while he is hearing David's complaint? What is he doing? He is gathering up slander. His heart is collecting things that he can use to later slander David. That's the scene that's being described. He is gathering together fodder for his cannons so that as soon as he turns and leaves David's presence, he can unload his cannons and talk about all the ways in which David wasn't trusting God and in which David deserved this punishment and iniquity that had come upon him. His whole reason for seeing David was just so that he could try and mine from David opportunities to slander David. Charles Spurgeon described it this way. He said, Out of the sweetest flowers, chemists can distill poison. And from the purest words and deeds, malice can gather groundwork for an evil report. It is perfectly marvelous how spite spins webs out of no materials whatsoever. It's no small trial to have base persons around you lying in wait for every word which they may pervert into evil. End quote. Now that is exactly what this feigned friend did to David. Listening to David, he seized on David's words and saw in David's words an opportunity to slander David. Have you ever had somebody take something that you have said or something that you have written and if it can be taken more than one way, they will find the way to take that that makes you look like a monster. And then they will take that word or that phrase and they will twist it and take it from its context and distort it. And then they will turn around and drive you through the back with it as soon as they leave your presence. Or am I just describing something that doesn't happen to very many people at all? It happens, doesn't it? Seizing upon every misspoken word. And David is on his sickbed. And so you can imagine that David, thinking that this man was a pers- personal close friend, might share with him the intimacies of his heart and the struggles and the anxiety and the worries and the frustrations. And then this friend would take that and walk away from his presence. And every one of those phrases that David would use and those words might be twisted and distorted and take from their context and twisted around to make David look like a horrible monster. And then this person would leave his presence and speak evil of him. And then you know what the wicked people do? They get together with other people who are eager to hear such slander. And they begin to whisper one to another. That's what they're doing. Verse 7. All who hate me whisper together against me. You know why they whisper? They whisper because if they said it loud enough for other people to hear it, righteous people to hear it, every their, their deeds and their heart and their motives will be exposed, and that's not what they want. So they begin to concoct in secret David's demise. And they, they put all of this together amongst those and, of course, it never goes any further than me, right? It's just between the two of us. Just between the two of us. You know what a secret is? A secret is something you tell one person at a time. And so that's what they do. Walk out. They tell one person at a time. They get into the little conclaves and they whisper and they put together the little, uh, uh, their little devices and their designs for David's downfall. And what are they after? Verse 8. That when he, sorry, verse 7. Against me they devise my hurt, saying a wicked thing is poured out upon him. In verse 5, they They desired David's downfall. In verse 7, they begin to design his downfall. 
They're taking what David has said and what he has done. They're twisting it and maligning him and speaking evil. And now they have begun to put together a plan so that David might fall. And they say in verse 8, a wicked thing is poured out upon him. That when he lies down, he will not rise up again. A wicked thing, that's the translation of a word, an Old Testament word for Belial. It's sometimes used as something demonic or satanic. And uh, it kind of has that connotation. Something that is demonic or dark or satanic. It means worthless, useless, um, Really, the slander is this. All that David is experiencing is because he is a son of Belial. And so he is getting the demonic results of his behavior. He has been turned over to Satan because he is not a man of God's favor. God has turned his back upon him. God does not favor him anymore. He needs to go away. Because, because he is a perverse man. He is a wicked man. And so all of this has come upon him because of his sin. And God doesn't look down in favor upon David at all anymore. A wicked thing has been poured out upon him, verse 8, that when he lies down, he will not rise up. Triumph. This is what they wanted. For David to lie down in his sickbed, to die, his name to perish, and for him to go away. And so they slandered him and attacked him from every conceivable angle to bring that apart. Now one might hope that in the midst of such suffering and affliction, that David's friends, his closest companions, might have heard the, the slander of the wicked and evil and said, I know that that is not true. I know that man. I will not believe that for a minute. You are a liar. That they might have stood up against the slander of David's enemies. They didn't do that. Verse 9. Even my close friend, in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. This, I believe, is the zenith of David's suffering. Everything else I think David could, can deal with. This has got to be the most painful element of all of this. We read it in Psalm 55. If it was a stranger who slandered me, I can understand that. If it was an enemy who does attacking me, I can flee from him. But my close friend, we walked in the house of God together. We enjoyed sweet fellowship. And the words translated familiar friend or close friend literally mean the man of my peace, meaning a man with whom I was at peace. He, he was my, my companion, my confidant. A man that there was no ill between us whatsoever. We were completely at peace. No misunderstanding. This man, a familiar friend, a man of my peace, one with whom I ate bread. And in that day, eating bread with somebody was the symbol of real close, intimate fellowship and friendship and camaraderie. Uh, they lived their lives in that time fighting the daily battle for bread. They needed bread. And when you shared bread with somebody, you shared the very sustenance of life itself. This was a man whom we could say was invited into David's home, had sat at David's table, had been welcomed to David's table. His children, David's children, knew this man. His wife knew this man. His friends knew this man. This was a close, familiar companion. And this person lifted up his heel. And the imagery there is of a, of a vicious attack, like a horse might attack somebody with its hoof. This man lifted up his heel against me. It would have been one thing if this familiar friend had just said, had heard the slander, and then just been silent. That would have been bad enough. It would have been bad enough if this familiar friend had heard the slander and then turned his back and walked away from David and never been his friend again. That would have been bad enough. But he doesn't do either of those. This man hears the slander and then joins the attack of his enemies. Lifting up his heel against David, at whose table he had sat and enjoyed sweet fellowship and probably worshipped together. My very familiar friend, with whom I have eaten bread, has lifted up his heel and joined the attack against me. That is the most painful verse in the whole psalm. 
That's the most painful verse in the whole psalm. That a friend would do this. This close companion, it's not apathy. It's not that he doesn't care about David. It's not cowardice that he won't stand up against David. It's treachery of the absolute worst kind. An undeserved, unwarranted, entirely attack from somebody who should have stood by David. When you're going through physical suffering, you know what you really want? A friend that you can turn to and sit down and say, share your heart. When you're being attacked by your enemies, you know what you really want? A friend that you can sit down with and share your heart. But when you're suffering physically and you're being attacked and then your friends turn against you, where do you have to go? Isn't that about the lowest you can possibly have? Isn't that about the lowest you could possibly go or be? It is. But here's what David is showing us, that God in the midst of that is faithful. Because though the arm of flesh may fail us, and though friends may fail us and turn on us, God never does. God is faithful. Even though David was suffering physically, and David had suffered the slander of evil men, and even though he had been undermined instead of undergirded, and though he had been betrayed even by his closest friend, he knows that God is faithful in the midst of all of that. Sometimes it is the betrayal of friends that makes us to realize that God is never unfaithful to His Word. There is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. And I believe that that describes not only good personal friends whom we all have that we know would never do this, but it also describes the Lord Jesus Himself. He is a friend that sticks closer than a brother. He will never betray and He will never be unfaithful. So God's faithfulness is seen in the expectation of the afflicted saint and the experience of the afflicted saint, and now third, in the exaltation of the afflicted saint. And this is verses 10 through 13. But you, O Lord, be gracious to me and raise me up. In verse 10, David prays for God to be gracious, but this time it is not in in, in regards to his sin, like verse 4, but he is praying for God to be gracious this time in regards not to his spiritual need for spiritual healing, but his need for physical healing. Now David gets to, I'm asking you, God, to raise me up from the sickbed. Raise me up, verse 10, that I may repay them. Now what do you do with that? That I may repay them. How are we to view that? It took me a while to kind of kind of be able to see this in a good light. And, and there are some people who are very uncomfortable with this language. You'll see it all the way through the Psalms, by the way. It's difficult to find a Psalm. It, not impossible. But almost every Psalm, I think it's 120 or something, I, I counted one time, out of the 150 Psalms, have elements of this in it where we're asking for vengeance or justice upon them. And for some people, words like this in the Old Testament scare them. They don't know what to deal with it. What do we do with David saying, raise me up that I may repay them? And some people just say, look, that's the spirit of the Old Testament or New Testament now. That's the sort of the mindset of a bygone era. We know better than that now, so now we know what it is that we should do. I don't think that that's a good way of looking at it. I'm uncomfortable with that because when when you say, look, David's a product of his times, and so we need to read that with that with read this with that in mind you're forgetting that there's more than one author to this psalm. The Spirit of God is the author here as well. So what is David saying here? I think that David may be saying in verse 10, one of two things, and these are both good, I think. It may be that by repaying them, David means not personal spite or vengeance, but that David is saying, I want to give them what these men judicially deserve, that David has in mind here, not personal vengeance, but governmental justice. What was the appropriate thing for somebody who betrayed the king and who attacked the kingdom, a man with whom God had made a close covenant, an everlasting covenant, what was the appropriate thing for somebody who had undermined that and sought the downfall of God's anointed king? What would be appropriate for such a person? 
governmental justice. And I think that that's what David is driving at. These men have attacked, in attacking David, he could say, in attacking me, they have attacked God. And so I'm asking God to raise me up that these men may get what they do deserve. Or it may be that by repaying them, David means I will repay them good for their evil. Do you not think it likely that a righteous man who had prayed for God's grace and prayed for God's forgiveness and received both God's grace and forgiveness might wish to extend that grace and forgiveness to somebody else? I think that that's really what's going on. I think that in the context, that is likely what David is saying. Raise me up that I may give back to them. Give back to them what? The grace and the forgiveness that he has prayed for in verse 4 and that he has prayed for in verse 10 and that he would likely receive, David wanted to extend that even to his enemies. Why should we think that David, being a man of the Old Testament, did not understand what it meant to heap coals upon the heads of your enemies or to do good to those who hate you or persecute you? Is that an ethic that only New Testament believers understood? Or do you think it's possible that David, an Old Testament saint, a righteous man, understood what it meant to suffer affliction unjustly and then to turn around and say, I will give good to those who have persecuted me and turned against me. I think that's what he's driving at. Verse 11. By this I know that you are pleased with me because my enemy does not shout in triumph over me. Remember in verse 8 they had said a wicked thing comes against him? Indicating that they were saying that God's favor did not rest on David. And David is saying now in verse 11, By this I know that your favor does rest upon me, that you will not allow my enemy to shout in triumph over me. I think verse 11, by the way, points to the Lord Jesus Christ too. There is a sense in which Jesus for a time looked as if his enemies had triumphed over him, right? But in the resurrection, what was shown? That God was triumphing over his enemies at the cross. The cross, though it was the darkest moment, was in fact God's moment of greatest victory and triumph. And the resurrection was simply the culmination of that victory and triumph. So though for a period of time it looks as if David's enemies had triumphed over him, David says, by this I know that your face shines upon me, that I have your favor, that you are kind to me, and that my enemies will not triumph over me. And the Lord Jesus could have said the exact same thing. Though the enemies were aligned against him and slandered him and wished for his death, wished that his name would be taken away, Jesus could say, I know that my enemies will not triumph over me. And in that reality of the resurrection, we see that God's favor did rest upon the Lord Jesus Christ and that was an acceptable sacrifice. Verse 12. Verse 12, by the way, deserves a whole sermon in and of itself, and I'll give it to you in a couple of sentences. As for me, you uphold me in my integrity, and you set me in your presence forever. This was David's moment of exaltation, his his statement of joy. It is God who upholds the righteous. Why is it that you, as somebody who has been saved, do not desire to walk out of the doors of this building and go commit a heinous sin to blaspheme the name of God? Why is it that you desire to respond in situations like this with integrity and righteousness and grace and forgiveness rather than vengeance? Why is that? Because God upholds you. Do you think that it's out of the goodness of your own heart that these things come about? Or do we recognize that if I have integrity and if I maintain my integrity and if I serve the Lord at all for a lifetime of integrity, it is only because He upholds me in my integrity. And if I sin, I have only myself to blame. And if I do not sin and I am preserved and kept from sin, I have only God to thank because He is the one who upholds the righteous in integrity. And that is, in fact, I think what David is praying. Lord, this is what I am going through. You uphold me in my integrity. I will not take vengeance upon these men because you keep me from doing so and show me the way of grace and show me the way of forgiveness and I can forgive them and I can show them love and kindness and grace in the midst of the persecution, affliction, and suffering. Because you are faithful and you keep me in my integrity. Verse 13 may be the conclusion of the psalm. It may in fact be the conclusion of the first book 
of the Psalms. Uh, all of the first 41 Psalms. It's unclear whether that's sort of attached as something that's sort of as, a, as an appendix to the first book, a collection of Psalms, or whether 13 should be attached to the entire Psalm. Either way, it really fits. Verse 13, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel from everlasting to everlasting. Amen and amen. So what is the point of the Psalm? That in the midst of affliction and suffering and betrayal, God can be trusted because He is a faithful friend. He never fails those who trust in Him. He preserves us through the affliction and through the betrayal. And we find in in Christ and in God, our Father, one whose arm is not made of flesh, and so it cannot fail. And though friends may betray us, the Father never does. Let's bow in prayer. Our Father, we thank You for this gracious reminder of Your sovereign keeping of Your people and Your love for us in the Lord Jesus Christ. May we never trust in princes or in chariots or our own strength or our own power for deliverance, but may we, Father, in the midst of suffering and affliction, cast our eyes and hearts upon You. Teach us to trust in You, our gracious and sovereign God who keeps us through that affliction. We know that You have not promised to preserve us from a sickbed, but that You, by Your grace, have promised to preserve us and keep us and give us grace on the sickbed. We thank You for Your keeping power. You are the one who maintains us in our integrity. You give us grace. You give us life. You give us eternal life. We thank You that You are the one who has promised that You will preserve us spotless before and present us faultless before Your throne with exceeding joy. It is in Christ that we love and in whom we have placed our trust. And it is in His name that we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.